listening to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. I guess we're on the air. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast, David and Nikki Nellis. Glad to be back with you. We're broadcasting live from our fabulous, luxurious, glassed-in booth here at the Line Hotel in mm-hmm. Adams Morgan. That's correct. I'm feeling very hip and with it. Do <laughs> you I need look? all the help you can get. Thank yes, you. you're Thank working you. it. I resemble that remark. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, as you guys know, who are regular listeners, this show's a deep dive into a very interesting subject every week. What? And, well, you should say we got our start, Foodie and the Beast. There's a reason that the name of the show is what it is oh, because is ten years ago, exactly ten years ago yesterday, yesterday. we uh, kicked off our first show, Foodie and the Beast, which is a live variety food and wine show. It's a on broadcast show on fifteen hundred AM. Yes, and we've been doing it for ten years, and we've brought in lots of guests, fabulous guests over the year and years. Excuse me. And on November eleventh, we're going to be hosting a pretty big party oh you're doing that promo all right well let's hit it why not we're here all right well it's our 10th anniversary show it's a live two-hour special that's correct from blue jacket which is the premier brewery and restaurant uh uh in dc but in also the navy on, yard. in the navy yard mm-hmm. on the southeast waterfront it's a spectacular space it's their fifth anniversary it of is. being open and uh, we're going to have do, lots of guests. It's yeah, going to be gonna, so much fun. We're going to have, I mean, we're going to have, I mean, Elvis is going to be there, Frank Sinatra. Uh, nobody much, in this area much everybody. is coming for oh. Elvis or Frank Sinatra. Can oh. you come up with some more interesting uh, Michael guests? Hutchins. Okay. No. No? no? no. All right. We'll leave Prince? Your, leave the booking to All right. Me. Anyways. Um, anyway, so we're very excited. So mark your calendars, please. November 11th from 11 to 1 at Blue Jacket and down if in you're, the Navy you know, Because the show goes all over the world. If you're out of town, call us. You can stay at our house. Okay. That's just stupid. <laughs> That's not stupid. Yes, it is. All it's right. true. Will you introduce our guest All right. So today, today we're going to take a deep dive into the world of cheese. Mm-hmm. What a friend we have in cheeses. That's okay. what I say. Uh, Jill Erber is the founder and CEO of Cheese Teak. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a uh, it's a, cheese shops and a restaurant and it's it, and a wine bar and a wine bar and what's very interesting about what Jill's done is she got into che- I mean listen remember when I was growing up there was nothing but flat American cheese and maybe some Swiss and now there is many varietals. And to be fair, that was a really really long that was time back ago. when Lincoln was in the White House. Right, I just but now clear. you've got more variety. Cheese is like wine. I mean, they're you know. Depending on and what, cheese goes really good with wine. It does <laughs> right. that too. It always comes back to wine for Nikki. But yes, that's seriously, true. depending on where the country of origin or even the you know the locale of origin, and you know cow's milk, sheep's milk, goat's milk, there are all kinds of varieties. So we're going to talk about it. I, first of all, welcome. Yeah, Thank hi, you. Jill. Thank but, you but for having me. Before we kick into you, I do want to mention since this show is live. There is an event going on in D.C. tomorrow night at the National Cathedral. It is Chefs for Equality. For those of you who are feeling very disheartened about what's been going on politically over the last year and a half or whatever, um, Chefs for Equality is an amazing event um, that raises funds for the Human Rights Campaign. A hundred chefs, 25 mixologists, a champagne lounge, a speed diner, so much delicious food, amazing auctions, and uh, it's always a good time. The drag queens come out in all their glory. It's so much fun. 600 of the hippest, hottest people come every year, and we have about... Oh, 601, because okay. I will You will be, be there, there yes, obviously. Yeah. But we have about 
50 tickets left. Of course, we'd love to sell them, and we'd love to see you there. Um, it's really a spectacular event, and this year we're at the National Cathedral, so it's really going to be a blowout. Okay. Well, and just yes. the, the bullet point on that is, along with being a great time, it is really time for people to step up and mm -hmm. open up their wallets, even with a, a buck, 10 bucks, 50 bucks, um, to support causes, that, I mean, that are getting trampled. So yes. we're not supposed to be political, but we we're are, not. and there it is. Well, so, we are. This Jill. event specifically does raise funds for civil liberties. Yes. So there you go. All right, okay. Jill. Can we start from the start? What, how did people start eating cheese? Because to me, it probably started as spoiled cow's milk or goat's milk, didn't it? Well, I, I like to use the word spoiled very uh, conservatively. I so, bet. I would yes. not want to use that word it either. It doesn't sound yummy uh, to say that your foodstuffs are spoiled. So mm -hmm. uh, what I will say is that uh, cheese is actually one of the... Um, oldest prepared foods on earth. So it's right up there with bread. So in other words, it has been made by humans for thousands of years. Well, they just found years. that wheel of cheese in Egypt. Indeed. Indeed. I'll bet you it's still good, actually. Uh, ancient Egyptian. <laughs> I'll bet you I don't want to be the one to try. Okay. No, I would totally try that. I would totally My try mummy that. told me not to eat it. Oh, thank you. Oh Halloween's God, coming up. Horrible. Yeah, that was good. Horrible, horrible, was horrible. Good. Okay, so go um, ahead. So anything that we know about it is 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 sort of legend and conjecture and whatnot. But uh, the, the famous legend of how someone ever thought to eat something like cheese, which is essentially curdled, soured milk, oh, okay. uh, <laughs> um, is that. Um, and you have to sort of take yourself. You have to do like the um, Austin Powers, like. Doo -doo 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 -doo. <laughs> and you have to go back in time thousands of years. And you have to picture the lone shepherd uh, walking through the heat of the desert. Uh, and he has his little um, flock of, I don't know why I'm waving my arms. But that's okay, though, we're watching you. Boy, I wish you guys had a great visual story. This is great. Um, so he, he has his flock of sheep surrounding him. Uh, and he keeps some sheep's milk, of course, because he has to drink something. But the only thing he has to keep it in is the stomach of right, an animal. Skin, right. right, Because they hadn't invented, you know... Um, those little hip um, There's cups no swell bottles. Has. No, There's no swell I was bottles. Like, you said I'm such a dork. I'm like, I don't even know what those are called. Yes, those swell bottles, they didn't have those yet. So he would carry his milk in, in the actual stomach of an animal. And within the stomach of an animal is stomach acid. And so the legend uh, goes that as he walked through the heat of the mm -hmm. desert, it warmed the milk within this animal's stomach that had acid in it. And when he went to go and drink it, lo and behold, he discovered it had curdled and turned into something um, you know, potentially edible. And of course, we're speaking about a, a man here. So his first thought was, well, I'm going to eat that, right? <laughs> so like most women would be like, um, um, no, that's, um, that's bad. I'm right, there's that. something wrong with that. Yeah, he's like, that. I can eat that. Wait, I'm going to start um, my own Me Too movement here. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yes, you can do that. You can do that. Um, so anyway, so that is the legend of how cheese would have ever been created was sort of this accidental uh, transformation from uh, what is a liquid into a, into a delicious but edible so salad. What is historically, let's say, after the legend, mm -hmm. the step from there? Because you called it a prepared product. Yes. So when do you, uh, not necessarily the date when it happened, mm -hmm. but around when did people start saying, okay, so now we're making this an actual edible product? Right. So, so it's hard to know exactly because it actually precedes written language. When, amazing. Yeah. So when you actually find these ancient Sumerian tablets, you know, the ones with like the cuneiform um, uh, writing on them, they have all sorts of inventory um, logs and things of what they had in their storerooms and what they used for currency. And what they've actually seen is that even back in that time, cheese was already being used as a form of currency and trade. So they it was something that would be logged in, in these ancient cultures, inventories, so to speak, and then used as a form of currency. And this was 
that long ago. So mm-hmm. sometime before then. And when, so, but it, this is in where? The Middle East? Mm-hmm. Where? Oh, so, yes. So I guess my question is, is without refrigeration, mm-hmm. what were they doing to make sure the cheese, I mean, we're so, we're so refrigerator calm, you know, we like are. we all are like, it's got to go in the fridge. Right. Like everything has to be cold. So yes. how, how did they, did they just grow massive rinds and that kept the insides? How did that work? Right. So, so the, the, the whole purpose of cheese, uh, dare I say, you know, they always say necessity is the mother of invention. So the, the production of cheese intentionally really stemmed from this desire to not starve to death sure. um, during, the, during the winter, right? So during the spring and the summer, your animals would make copious amounts of milk and no problem, right? Well, then milk is very perishable. A week later, uh, if you hit wintertime, you have no food at all. So um, sort of like salting meats and salting fishes, they realized that making cheese was a way to literally survive um, during the winter. Hmm. So it doesn't need to be refrigerated cheese, because obviously it precedes electricity and refrigeration. Um, All it really requires is a good dose of salt. And this is why um, it's believed that the most ancient produced cheese would be akin to something like feta. Um, which we all know and love now, but it's a highly salty um, brine-soaked cheese. So you need a lot of salt, and you need a relatively cool environment. And by relatively cool, we're really just talking something that's out of the sun, in the cellar, literally in a cave. Mm -hmm. Um, So we all have this very trendy notion of, like, cheese caves now. But, I mean, they're, like, legit caves uh, right. that, that the cheese would be would be stored in. Well, um, so that's like in, um, I think it's in the country of Georgia, they have these caverns mm-hmm, for their wine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I assume that's probably where cheese was going as well, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's an interesting connection that um, the, the production of wine and the, and the cultivation of grapes is something that would have gone in absolute line with um, sort of animal husbandry, this concept of animal husbandry, which is where we care for animals and they produce um, product for us, so to speak. Uh, so, so absolutely in line. And this is why I think so many cheeses and wines have really similar um, sort of historical um, romance um, and grew up together. Well, you know, it's really interesting. Yesterday we had uh, on Foodie and the Beast, we had a an author on our, uh, well, she's a chef and, an, and a psalm and an author, uh, Vicki Ray. She has a new book called The Wine Table. And uh, that's one of the things she did was she basically gave the wine, she went to a winemaker in a wine region and then said, this is the grapes that they are producing and these are the products that are produced in the region. And right. sort of did a side-by-side comparison of, how those products go so well mm-hmm. with the wine. I mean, right. it's all nature mm-hmm. and nurture, obviously, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's really interesting. It is. It's interesting, and it is not in any way accidental um, or coincidental, necessarily. Um, it's really, again, you're talking about two products from the earth. Mm-hmm. Grapes, of course, coming literally from the earth and being I mean, made into wine. I mean, to travel to get to, but it is no, originally for sure. from but, but you have animals who feast <laughs> upon the land, who live upon the land, and then they produce milk that tastes of uh, that tastes of the land, and then the cheese, therefore, tastes of, of that as well. It's a, right. a, the concept of terroir that we use very freely uh, when we're speaking about wine is absolutely applicable to cheese as well. Well, because I would assume, depend, I mean, on whichever animal the cheese is coming from, whether it's goat, sheep, grass. or cow, mm-hmm. is eating mm-hmm. you grass. Hope. You hope. We hope. We, we hope, hope, yes. Right. Well, so <laughs> let's get started. So when you, you started in the industry, you did just start with your... Four fabulous cheese cheese. No. <laughs> so let's talk about your cheese background. 
Okay. Um, well, my, my cheese background, I'm, I'm very much self-taught uh, as far as cheese goes. I did uh, work in a dairy, so I'm familiar with milk production, but that had been purely for, for selling milk. I had no serious exposure to cheese until, uh, other than enjoying the eating of the cheese, but right. um, no understanding of the industry and the world of cheese making until I went to work for a food importer in the D.C. area. And it was uh, a company that was based in the Bronx, New York, and they were expanding down to D.C. And they said, hey, you know, we are growing our business down there. We would love to kind of, you're down there and we'd love to have you come and help us sell stuff to chefs, essentially. But this was everything from flour to uh, sugar to butter to caviar, everything. Um, what I noticed very quickly is that one of the things that the chefs and thereby their customers were the most fascinated by and wanted me to keep coming back and talk about was cheese. Now, which, what, how long ago is this? Like 20 years this ago? This would have been probably about 18, 18, years, 18, ago? 18, 18 years, years ago. Yes. Because I would say probably 20, 25 years ago in New York and L.A. and San Fran, you were seeing cheese courses in the yes. higher end restaurants, right? In a little Washington 25 years ago, like you would see at the fine dining restaurants, they were trying to replicate what was going on in France, maybe a little bit Italy. Mm -hmm. You would see a cheese course. Correct. But it wasn't taken with the same sincerity or severity that it is today. Do you know what I mean? Like a cheese course back then could have like three heart. There was no thoughtfulness. There was no knowledge that went with it. And what we also need to understand is that let's say 20 years ago, the availability right, was availability. so much more limited. Sure, um, so, so yes, the knowledge was limited, but I think because there was so much, um, uh, there was really a dearth of great options here in the United States, mm-hmm. um, not even speaking of American-made cheeses, which really had a, a renaissance and, and truly exploded back in the 70s with, with very small, almost exclusively goat cheese producers um, out of California and, and some out of the East Coast. And so that's when this concept of the American artisan cheese movement came about, was in the late 70s. And then you see that in the decades following that, a love of cheese started to develop more. I think once Americans started to feel a little like, oh, we do, we do this too, and we have something we can be proud of. We no longer have to feel this stigma of, oh, American cheese. We all know what that means. Right. Uh, Slice yeah. like Velveeta. Exactly. I mean, you know. Let's not knock Velveeta. What? Let's not knock Velveeta. I did, well, it's not cheese. It's not cheese? It's, it's like a, a cheese food. It's cheese-like. It's a processed cheese-esque. product. Cheese-esque. Processed yes, cheese. Whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, no, right. We all had to be educated on it. So right. you all of a sudden had access so cheese. I had access to all of these cheeses, and, and I just, I loved it because I loved what cheese represented. It represented farmers, it represented the, the animals, and it represented the land, and it represented this amazing sort of way that individuals could have this passion and, and produce this amazing product that people could actually consume, and, and that it was sustenance, but also passion, and it just captured everything. It was romantic to me. It was delicious. The people that did it were just the coolest people that you wanted well, to be. that's what I was going to ask. Know? So when you started selling for this company, did they send you to meet people? Did they, were they like, you need to know their story too? Like, at what point did that start becoming part of the process? Because I feel like in sales, especially around food products, whether it was cheese or wine or sun-dried tomatoes, mm-hmm. like, it used to not be the story. It just used to be, this is what you're selling. And now, mm-hmm. you know, today, obviously, is so different. But I was sort of curious, at that point, were they like, no, this is a great story, and you can tell it? 
it, and it, share it. It was person specific. So I will say that some people from whom I learned were very much like, this is how much it is per pound and it's made in this and this is the milk and go and move it. Uh, and then other people, and those were the ones that I kind of glommed onto, were so passionate about it and really made you understand the story and, and taught me that each one of these cheeses was a little personality kind of of its own, uh, no matter where it was from, whether it was Italy or, or New Jersey. So it, it's a, just a great learning process. And I was not alone. Again, it, it was the, the chefs and their customers and their teams that were like, please come back, teach us more, teach us how to talk we're, about we're this stuff. farmers talking at that point. Hormones versus hormone-free animals and fertilizer versus fertilizer-free Was that part of the conversation? Pastures? No. no. Not that. No, no, no. no. no I'm Even, saying. So yeah. that, Even, that still colors the kind of cheese you get, whether it's, you know, if you're talking back in the 70s, it might be, you know, artisanal cheese. Right. But it's still from an animal that's eating fertilizer and, and getting shut up with hormones. Right. Maybe. I think that what you'll find with, with the smaller producers, because you can get away with this when you're a smaller producer, because um, you don't need the same uh, hardcore consistency and, and reliability. And you people will embrace the fact that the cheese tastes different every time they eat it based on what the animals were eating and what time of year it is. You have more leeway. In large industrial cheese making processes, you don't have that leeway. Way. People mm-hmm. want their cheese to taste the same every time. Right. So I think you will tend to find with the smaller producers that they were following a natural route, um, anyway. sort of organically, right. uh, no pun intended. Happening. Yeah, because they didn't they didn't need to rely on this this harsh consistency of product all the time. They had smaller um, herds of animals, and it was easier to care for them and feed them properly. So I think it kind of went this awareness of the natural food movement. I think went hand in hand with these amazing, truly, these entrepreneurs that decided they wanted to do something different than mass-produced food. Okay, so when you're going to these high-end restaurants, or restaurants in general, um, you mentioned earlier that you went to um, off-air to chefs, mm-hmm. Chef Jeffs. Chef Jeffs, oh, right. yes. Which I remember when he opened on New Mexico mm-hmm. Avenue. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, you know, that was like a fast, it was a upscale casual restaurant. It was like... He loved good cheese. I will tell you what... Um, Jeff Tracy was, was he, he is still one of my um, happiest memories of working with chefs. You know, you meet certain chefs that are just really genuinely, they kind. seem like really nice, pleasant people. Mm-hmm. And he was one of those. And to this day, I'm, I'm very thankful for, for how kind and accepting he was. Um, and this is when actually another chef in the area um, named Johnny Monis, um, who now has... Uh, Comey and Little Comey, Sarah. Yes. So he was actually the sous chef under Jeff Tracy. And he was the one that I would work with a lot on the cheeses. And he loved... The cheeses, he loved just learning about them and tasting them and looking at them. And um, so, so, yeah, the people were really, really into it. And the more they got into it, the more their servers were into it and talking about it to their customers. And- well, let, me ask, let me ask about, uh, you know, the chef back in those days, and that's um, uh, uh, um, Jean-Louis. Thinking- yeah, Paladin. but Jean-Louis, now, was, he, was he still open at that point? No. No, so he no. wasn't he open was, at that he point. He wasn't this at that point. This is when he was closed. We're talking yeah. about 18 years ago. Oh, yeah. we're just talking about 2000. Yeah. I was going back for I know, but she wasn't selling cheese then. But I mean, yeah. what you is this when you... Did you start in the year 2000 with those people, or were you doing it before that? I wanted to sing that song for a moment. Right. Um, sorry. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to say I started in 2001. Yes, 2001. Oh, okay. that's, that's yep. even after all the power restaurants had 
come and gone and all that. So okay. right, 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 right. So so the big restaurants then like Galileo was was very yeah. big then. He was sure. one of my big customers um, as well and loved the exotic Italian cheeses. Needless mm-hmm. to say, so there were there were still some pretty big players. But it was our, our DC dining scene was nothing then. Um, I not mean, necessarily it was, in quality, no, 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 right. but just in quantity, quantity. of amazing um, I think that's venues. always really important to say because yes. there was a dining oh, scene in for D.C. Sure. It's just breadth and yes. depth was totally different yeah, than what People say that a lot, like, oh, our, our dining scene was horrible. I'm like, well, I don't no, not remember really. it being horrible. There, just wasn't, <laughs> just, there were just fewer of them. but There wasn't as many places and quite... Honestly, there wasn't the density of people to go to them anyway. Very, so very everything has yeah. changed mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so at what point were you like... I think there's a business here. So it was on the heels of this interest that I that I saw. And again, you know, keeping in mind when I was selling wholesale to chefs, I was I was moving them all, you know, all sorts of different things. So it, it became very apparent very quickly that people were particularly interested in cheese. Mm-hmm. And chefs have always been very much kind of a bellwether of, of what's coming and kind of harbingers of the cool new thing. They were so into it. I thought, if chefs are really this into cheese, it is not going to be long before their clientele are going to want this. Um, and they're going to want to learn about it and have a place that they can go to have that experience. Well, because I have to be honest with you. I mean, I grew up in suburbia, New Jersey. And... There was a cheese shop Mm -hmm. that my mom would go to and we would all go to. And then when I went to school in Boston, there was like, I mean, these are lone Mm -hmm. cheese shops, Mm -hmm. right? Like just a random, New York City was different. There were multiple cheese shops. I mean, you had Murray's and all those places. But, um, but, you know, I remember moving down to D.C. in the 90s and there not only wasn't there cheese shops, there weren't even gourmet shops. I hate that word gourmet because it's too. There was one. It's so vague. Sutton Place, Ah, I guess. But, you know, I mean, like, little corner Mm -hmm. stores that had amazing products and uh, cheeses and, you know, olives, like, snacks Mm -hmm. and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And they're just, it just wasn't there then. You know, so when you opened up Cheese Teak, you were really the first person to open up sort of that little corner market that really spoke to people that offered cheeses and and education and then obviously you saw the need to expand on that right it 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 struck a nerve with people because i think on one hand it was very nostalgic for them they had this romantic notion of you know walking down to their town and and there's a little cheese shop and a little butcher shop and Uh even though a lot of them had never necessarily experienced that they had a romantic notion of it and they embraced it like crazy uh and then on the other hand uh, they were familiar enough with it they knew that these things existed and they wanted they traveled the world so we have well, a that very was the point. I mean, international then, clientele really, we're really traveling absolutely and if you walk down the street in florence that's what you get that's your what veggies, you get your butcher your cheese uh-huh. your and they, they were like why why don't we have right. this here so again on one hand it was this um novel kind of oh how quirky and, and interesting there's a cheese shop and on the other hand it spoke to people at a very sort of um innate level um mm-hmm. that, that this is how it should be you should be able to walk to your local shopkeeper and and get this product that they had hand selected that that they were particularly proud of and stood by uh and and knew about and wanted to share it with you and and in our first location in, in the delray neighborhood of alexandria people just really really embraced that immediately well i feel like when you opened in the delray area it was like a little expansion like there was a couple places the butcher shop opened right there was a couple places evening star was already there Evening star was already there um our original spot where cheese teak first opened after we 
moved down the block um, and expanded, that's when the butcher shop moved into what was the original Cheese Teak location. Okay. Yes. Okay. So it was a few years after. But yes, mm-hmm. I mean, there was the little coffee shop and everything was individually or independently owned, I sure. should say. And um, it, the Delray residents did and still do take a lot of pride in the individual nature of the businesses mm-hmm. that they have. I the bet. Community. Well, plus there's so much going on around there. Oh, gosh, yes. So when you moved, I want to talk more about the cheeses, but mm-hmm. I just want to talk about because you added things in addition. What came first? So, product or like menu items or wine? So first was just cheese and charcuterie. Right. And then a year after that, when we were still just a retail shop, we added wine. Mm-hmm. So we did that for a couple years and then we expanded and added the restaurant. So that's when we actually started making, you know, the sandwiches and salads and the, for people. Come from? Because that says refined and kind of individually, uh, uh, individualized taste profiles as, as anything else. It is. It is. Uh, and, and unfortunately, even to this day, we we have a lot more American producers now of really fabulous uh, charcuterie that we didn't have even 15 years ago. So a lot of what I originally had was Italian. Mm-hmm. So any of the whole hams and things we could always import, you still can't import sausages and things from Italy. So anytime you see a salami here in the United States, it's made in the United States. Right. So, uh, so and that's, that's to this day. Mm-hmm. So so, okay, so you would add wine, mm-hmm. you add your menu item. Mm-hmm. How did you go about, because I have to assume, like here you had to do all this education on cheese, mm-hmm. right? Now you add the wine component. Yes. Menu <laughs> items I get because you're like, ooh, we can play with macaroni and cheese mm-hmm. and we can play with grilled cheese. We, mm-hmm. can, we can do these things up. But how do you add the education of knowing wines and cheese? Because pairings are really tough. Pairings are, are, are really tough tough. Uh, and a lot of times, however, I don't know that they have to be. And I'm going to circle back, Nikki, to something we spoke about in the very beginning about how so many cheeses and wines really historically and in in the earth grew up together. Mm -hmm. So one sort of standby recommendation that I always make to folks if they get overwhelmed with this idea of, oh, how do I pair a wine with a cheese and I don't want to mess it up, is just go for your region. If you know that your wine is from, you know, the Veneto region of Italy, use a cheese from the Veneto region of Italy. Good advice. And I love that. And it's super simple, but but huh. it, and it's again because it's not an accident that they would be fantastic together. Of course. So so the region is really really critical when it comes to that. For the most part, if you have a really great wine that you love and you have a great cheese that you love and you pair them together, it's going to taste good to you because so much of enjoying Personal food, taste. yeah, and, and enjoying food is about the experience. And that's something that we are forever trying to um, create and communicate is mm-hmm. it's really about that, that, that friendship and the sharing of the bottle and the sharing of the cheese and the conversation that comes from those that makes something taste beautiful. Uh, we you. have to take a quick yeah, break. Yeah, when we come sure. back, I want to talk about if you if you have a newbie, cheese education and Ooh, how yes. that works. Well, I want to do cheese education, and I want to also what I'd love to talk about is the cheeses from goat cheese. You know, Absolutely. sheep's milk, mm-hmm. and like what the differences are and what that means, and how people can educate themselves on it. Um, aside from taking classes at Cheese Teak, of course. We can do that. Uh, this is David and Nikki Nellis. It is industry night at the Line Hotel. We'll be back in just a sec.
Let me hear from you So many memories Rushing back again to me Remember how good things used to be All right, we're back on Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast, David and Nikki Nellis. And we're we talking, got cheese. We're talking to Jill Erber, who is a, how would I call you, a cheese entrepreneur. <laughs> She's or a something cheese like lady. That. I, I don't know that. what you're. Oh, I'm totally She's a big cheese. She's got that. Cheese Teak, uh, four uh, retail stores and um, restaurants. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess at the heart and soul of all of it is a whole spectrum of cheeses. So talk to me a little bit about, because... Cheese is becoming, cheese is like wine now. And, and all of a sudden, you know, back Not in the now, day. Not now, always. That's what she said earlier. Oh, you're interrupting me. You're bad. <laughs> I'm no, I'm saying cheese. that there are a lot of people, you know, who aren't foodies and who don't have, you know, newsletters about food, who just, you know, who are sort of. Are you looking at into, me? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like. You know, let me just say this. I feel like I'm getting slammed yes, here. <laughs> no, I would say, they, we, I call them food snots. But anyways, mm-hmm. uh, who don't know any, you know, they, they don't have any education in it. How do you, you know, indoctrinate them? How do you orient them to to begin to explore? Uh, listen, remembering the names of cheeses is as hard as remembering the names of wine. I mean, I can. I know never I'm really remember. bad at that too. You know, so how do you? What am I eating though? So you are eating. Why are actually, you eating it? Not passing it around. That is my favorite cheese Hello. on earth. Yeah. That is called Piave Vecchio. Okay. It is a Italian. Old an Italian, pi- old bridge. Mm-hmm. And that is an Italian cow's milk cheese from the Veneto region. Wait a minute, Piave, Ponte is bridge. What's it's, Piave? I think it's. I think mm. it's Are you correcting her? Yes. I thought it was. He speaks Italian. Oh, do you really? He does. Well, Piave is That's like a cool. paving stone, I think. Oh, maybe I'm. Maybe it's the stones of the bridge. Yeah, maybe. Okay, whatever. All right. uh, it's something old, yeah, and it's and delicious. delicious. So it's it's my favorite favorite cheese. It's a cousin to Parmigiano Reggiano, but it. it's a little bit younger, and so it's not it's, as sharp. It's not as sharp, mm-hmm. and it's not as, as crystalline. Mm-hmm. It tastes like Pecorino chewy. Romano too. It's that same it's, consistency. It's gonna t- it's gonna have that same consistency. It's not gonna be as salty right. as Pecorino right. Romano, and it's also cow's milk, whereas yeah, Pecorino is sheep's milk. So did you know that? Did you know Pecorino was sheep's milk? 
Pecora is a sheep. That is a okay. sheep. Yes. So any pecorino is always sheep's milk, and there's hundreds and hundreds of them. Don't try and catch me on nothing Italian, all right, <laughs> smartass. Nothing all right. Italian. All right. All right. Um, okay. So how do we educate people on cheese, and how do you teach them to differentiate, like sheep, um, goat, cow, all these kinds of different cheeses? Right. So I think products, I guess, really, you know, it sounds like a like kind of a cliche, but I think really letting people's stomachs uh, get them excited about something is the best way to teach them Mm -hmm. to uh, make them feel comfortable asking questions, to make them curious about, um, you know, what's what's in front of them. I still remember when I opened the first cheese teak and, and back then it felt like so many cheeses. I think I had about 40 cheeses in the case. I bet that felt really overwhelming. Oh my gosh. It was like, I, I looked at them all and I remember just thinking it's, it was just so, who is going to ever want all of these weird cheeses? And, right. And I remember my mother coming in. that's before um, we met. Well, yes, for yeah. sure. <laughs> for sure. You would have been that guy. Um, but then my mother came into the shop and I remember her standing there just sort of looking dumbfounded. And I said, what's going on, mom? Is something wrong? And she said, I just never realized there were this many cheeses in the whole world. Isn't that amazing? Um, and, and I think that's, I always try and remind myself of that awe feeling that she had, that that's how a lot of people feel about cheese. And yet at the same time, it's one of the most familiar things to them. And so if you can teach them that it's nothing to be sort of nervous about, there's nothing snooty about cheese, it's, it's something that's been around for thousands of years, it's kind of a, a, a gross process of how you make cheese and maintain cheese, and it's dirty and you funky. Really find and that, I mean, I think if people make wine snooty. You know, there's a certain kind of... Um, I disagree with that. Oh, come on. I think there are people who make wine snooty, but the winemakers, the people who are out there who make the product, it's a passion. Yeah, I know, but Mm -hmm. there's a certain kind of wine chauvinism, you know. Oh, you don't know? Cheese is different because cheese is more plebeian, I think. Yeah, I think cheese is much more approachable, and I think it is diverse enough and interesting enough, and there's enough to learn about it, but you don't get caught up in one of the things that people find really daunting about the wine industry um, is the vintages, right? So one year being different than the other, and you're supposed to know the differences in the years, and if you don't, you're somehow out of the the wine loop. You didn't know that, you know, 87 was a great year, or 89, I'm sure there's wine people out there going, no! All right, so we have to stop for a minute because radio is the theater of the mind, and I'm about to bite into a cheese that has ash on it. Which cheese? Oh, yeah, what is that? Speaking of American artisan cheesemakers. Oh, is that... Firefly? This, this is not. This Ooh. is actually um, right from uh, near my hometown. Okay. This is from Indiana. Ooh. And it is uh, by Capriol. Ju- uh, Judy Shad is one of the great uh, sort of original American artists and cheesemakers. And she has goats. And this is a surface ripened goat's milk cheese with what ash does that mean? in it. What does mm-hmm. surface ripened mean? Because I think since we're talking about this cheese sure. and you have two cheeses here that have rinds on them. Correct. Hard rinds on them. Mm-hmm. So... People are always like, do I eat the rind? Do I not eat the rind? Like, nobody will, knows what they're supposed to that do. That is the number one most frequently asked question. Okay. Which, yes. At Cheese Teak is, do I eat the rind or not? The simple answer is yes. I eat it. <laughs> always eat the rind. Unless right. unless it is something that is very obviously inedible. Like waxed. Like, like a waxed, gouda or something like, like that. Like leaves. Okay. So if something is covered uh, in leaves. Sure. Don't eat that. Pine needles. Velvet. Uh, you know, anything that's like, mm, gee, that's not consumable. So you're saying don't eat velvet. Don't okay, eat velvet. Right. Yes, makes sense. Uh, don't eat wax. But so like with both of these, mm-hmm. so what is Those are point? intended to be eaten. So okay. that is... I just bre- ate the rind. It adds to the flavor. Oh, it's, it's it does. What's this cheese? The, the other one, one is Brebby Russe, which okay. is a French sheep's milk. 
milk cheese. Okay. Okay. So the rind on that is also very, very edible and very, very delicious. But so, but I guess my question is, is with both these rind, rinded Mm -hmm. cheeses, Mm -hmm. what's the process? Like, so people understand, because it is intimidating to see these cheeses and sort of try to figure out how you're supposed to eat it. And eating the rind, you know, is the rind okay? Because mm-hmm. I think people think it's mold. And oh, so it therefore is, yes. it's unhealthy or, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's yes. going to make me sick. I do. I do. Uh, and and we, do, we do get that uh, a decent amount. I think that um, explaining the process to people, it kind of, it either kind of grosses them out or they really think it's so funky and cool. And they're like, oh, that's awesome. I'm going to eat that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they taste it and it's delicious. So, sure. so it's okay with them. But those two cheeses in particular, and when we refer to a surface ripened cheese, that simply means that um, there's a mold, a colony of mold <laughs> living on the outside that mm-hmm. is intentionally applied to the cheese. Um, and it grows and it creates a wonderful sort of unctuous um, texture on the inside of the cheese. And it and a barrier. Too. And a barrier, yeah. exactly. So so the important thing to realize about cheese is it is 100% utilitarian. It is mm-hmm. all about function with cheese. And you may find some that are beautiful despite that, but the rind is purely functional. It protects the interior of the cheese. It keeps critters from getting into it. It keeps uh, different bacteria from growing on your food and contaminating it where it would actually be harmful. Right. So the rind is absolutely a functional uh, well, creature. <laughs> let me ask a question because mm-hmm. we always talk about goat, sheep, and cows for our right. cheese, but there are other grass-eating animals around mm-hmm. the world. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't make German Shepherd cheese because they would object, of course. But well, yes, I would not want milk. to try and milk right. it. <laughs> right. Don't do that. But I mean, do, is there yak cheese? And there is. is there I there mean, is actually camel cheese. There is. There is. So there's there are more cheeses than you might uh, think of. There's donkey cheese. There's actually we have actually had a Tibetan yak cheese in the store. What is donkey? I mean, what's the difference in the? In nothing. Uh, it nothing. tastes the same. It lo- well, nah. I mean, the yak cheese. I got to tell you, when I got this thing in, I thought, oh my god, there's going to be like hair on it. It's going to like make weird noises or something. It was the most mundane cheese. When I opened it, I, it was like deflating. Oh, oh god, it's not very cool. It was just a very hard. And it didn't make you yak cheese. either. It so. didn't make me yak and it wasn't hairy but so, what a look okay. yes right. I, was, I was disappointed but there's again camel cheese anywhere where people domesticate their but animals but I mean is there a taste like a profile to camel absolutely. cheese absolutely yeah 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 for is sure for sure so, mm-hmm. well can we discuss the profile yeah. of cheeses that people here predominantly eat uh, well that's what well, you know let me finish my second question is well because you were taking a long time to like oh ask stop okay. <laughs> stop <laughs> All right. Is, do you carry other kinds of cheeses than sheep, cow, and We goat? do. So, so one of the most common ones uh, that a lot of people are familiar with is water buffalo cheese. So mm. if you oh, see sure. buffalo mozzarella, it's not from like upstate New York, right? It's, it's actually made from water buffalo, which are a Which I don't really animal. think people put together. Do you know what no, I mean? Oh, they we all buy buffalo, buffalo no. mozzarella or mozzarella di buffalo. Mm-hmm. And yep. I don't think anybody is like... I think they think it's American bison that's getting milk. Right. And I, I laugh. Well, can you imagine I trying to milk a bison? I don't even think they realize that it's from a buffalo. I think they just think it's like some Italian word. I don't think people have put it I don't, together. I don't like think buffalo they do soldiers? I don't know what name. they think. I don't know. Uh, so, so yeah. So the water buffalo is actually an animal that was uh, native to northern Africa. And... Mm-hmm is now very much known to be an Italian animal. But the history of that is that when Cleopatra and Mark Antony had their torrid love affair, um, they used to sail the like Nile ours. and eat mm-hmm. right, right. Like ours. Um, and, eat, like ours. and eat this delicious um, buffalo milk cheese uh, when they would sail on their barge. And then when he returned to Italy, as a token of her love for him, she sent him um, this uh, herd of water buffalo, which is sort of 
not at all romantic, and, and really. he did not end up well. Let's uh, just No, he did that. not. <laughs> and she did not either. No. So let's not. Although at least hers was of her own yeah, doing. she made an ass out of herself. <laughs> yes, uh-huh. indeed. Uh-huh. Thank you. Um, so anyway, so that's how the, the, the water buffalo made it to Italy and now is, is But aren't they very cranky? Italy. I mean, water buffalo are... are mm, I mean, no? they're, they're pretty domesticated. I mean, I think that they... You know, a cow can be cranky, believe it or not. They can... They seem do so some sweet. major damage oh. if they That's want to, true. even right. accidentally. Okay, so but, what yeah. are the profiles? Let's uh, take uh, mm-hmm. water buffaloes out of it. Let's okay. just do primary. Yes, the primary sure. ones. What would you say the easiest profiles are for people? Because you know, there's a lot of people who like say, "I don't like goat cheese." Oh my gosh, yes. So, because so they don't like like that they one. Like the they don't like one the, kind of goat cheese, right. but there because is, they've had a bad goat cheese before, right? So. And mm-hmm. also, I think that they just think there's. Just that, like, crumbly, like, French mm-hmm. chevre, right? Yes. I yes. I'm pronouncing it right. Um, okay. As opposed to tons of other cheeses mm-hmm. that are made with goat's milk. Correct. So goat's milk cheeses are, uh, vary across the spectrum. So you have very soft, fresh cheeses. You have super hard-aged cheeses. Mm-hmm. You have goudas that are made out of goat's milk. Absolutely. Um, and, yes, each of the types of milk has different uh, molecular and chemical properties to them that make them actually taste and, and behave differently when you turn them into cheese. So it's no accident, for instance, that the vast majority of brie-style cheeses are made from cow's milk. And this is because cow's milk has the, most, uh, the longest and most complex fat and protein chains of any milk. So that's why a lot of people have trouble digesting cow's milk, because cows have how many stomachs? Who knows? 47. They have four okay, stomachs. And how, how many stomachs do people have, we Nikki? Have yes, wait, we have one. Nikki's about like, me? wait a minute. I think 47. <laughs> I would like a second stomach. I've always wanted a second Indeed, stomach. Indeed, it would right? be convenient. It would be really convenient. Nikki, that would be so mm-hmm. hot. No, just to switch it out. Especially if you had it on the outside. <laughs> you know I mean? mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. sure. I wouldn't be able to keep my hands off you. Okay, nice. shut up. Um, so anyway, so the cow's milk very hard to digest, but it makes these great sort of gooey, stretchy, unctuous cheeses like brie okay i'm gonna ask a question mm-hmm. because it just occurred to me but i never thought of it before so if you are lactose intolerant yes is that just to cow's milk no so this is one of the great misconceptions actually so we will get a lot of people that come into cheese teak and say oh i'm lactose intolerant i can only have goat's milk for instance goat's milk but there's cheese. lactose in goat's milk a- absolutely so there's lactose in every kind of milk uh, okay. and every kind of cheese in a tiny tiny quantity so any cheese has very very limited so do you have amounts lactose-free of lactose cheese? there is lactose free is it horrible cheese. it's all right it's not good you know cuz anytime you 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 know putts with the, the milk too lactose? much it's just not it's sugar milk sugar Okay. So just like glucose, sucrose, mm-hmm. lactose is right. the, is what makes milk sweet. Okay. Um, so it and you lose almost all the lactose when you turn milk into cheese. But right. all milks have it, and all cheeses have it. So a lot of people think that they are lactose intolerant when really they just have a hard time digesting cow's milk. Uh, so if they can have other kinds of milk, then that's a hint to that's us. That's really mm-hmm. interesting. Um, okay. So we got. The confines of cow's milk. Mm-hmm. What about goat's milk? Okay, so goat's milk is actually the closest to human milk in composition. So this is why people find it very easy to digest. In fact, um, babies, uh, human babies, <laughs> will be given goat's milk instead of cow's milk if they have this trouble digesting. This could be digesting. why you're so stubborn. So um, goats are very much like people. Uh, yes, they are very much like people. Uh-huh. Very okay. social mm-hmm. creatures, actually. I'm sorry to understand that um, So goat's milk, very easy to digest. It has these little teeny tiny particles, and it feels very velvety on the palate. It has a natural high acidity. So that's why goat's milk cheeses go so well with food, because they're really acidic, and they can mm-hmm. set off the flavors of the food really well. And again, really easy to digest. Okay. 
Um, and then the third category is the sheep's milk. So sheep's milk is incredibly dense with solid stuff. So it has the most lactose, the most fat, the most everything. Uh, it's the healthiest of all of the milks as far as the contents of you know, vitamins Calcium and minerals and, and all, all that. that. Mm-hmm. Um, but sheep are very stingy with their milk, so they don't produce a whole lot. So sheep's milk cheeses tend to be very expensive because of that. Yes. Okay. Um, but some of the most famous cheeses in the world, a cheese called Manchego, which yep. is a lot of people Spanish. know and love, mm-hmm. uh, they have no idea that it's made from sheep's milk. They just assume no, they don't know. that it's cow's milk. No, but it's by far the most famous. And a cheese called Roquefort, which is a blue cheese uh, from right. France, is made from sheep's milk as well. I mean, we can talk blue cheese. Just because I don't <laughs> like it doesn't mean we can't talk about it. <laughs> What is blue cheese? What is it? Oh my gosh. So blue cheese is so fantastic. Um, It's the coolest thing ever. Blue cheese is a cheese with a blue bread mold essentially growing within it and it makes these beautiful so is it injected in like it's it's usually do they do it on purpose on purpose okay for sure yeah so it's mixed in with the curd of the cheese before the cheese is formed into a wheel Uh, and then they will allow oxygen to enter the cheese and it causes the blue mold to proliferate within the cheese and it consumes it so it actually eats away at the cheese um, over a period of time and if you wait too long you'll open up your blue cheese wheel and it will be all hollowed out and just like blue dust inside because they, <laughs> the blue mold has eaten your cheese. So, but blue uh, cheese is hundreds of years. In other words, people Thousands. have been doing Oh, yes. And, mm-hmm. and I imagine it was an accident originally. Right. And so then the- somebody tasted it and said... Mon Dieu. Right. So this is another, this is my favorite legend of, of cheese making because who would have ever created something like this on purpose, right? Right. So the legend for this one is, again, we have to go back in time to our uh, lone shepherd who's out uh, in the hot you sun. You can't drink any more champagne, by the way. <laughs> I have not even had a sip. She hasn't had I'll any. Uh-oh. And we still have to find out. I could wax poetic about what we're drinking. all day long. But finish your story um, first. Okay, so so the, the lone shepherd, and he's out, and it's very hot. Uh, so he takes his sheep's milk um, to go in and have a snack, and he he has his loaf of bread and he has his um, you know vessel filled with sheep's milk and he goes into a cool dark cave mm-hmm. to take a break and all of a sudden across the mouth of the cave traipses a beautiful maiden and he sees the maiden and he wants to go woo her quote unquote and so he pursues the maiden to woo and then when he has finished wooing he comes back to the cave and he sees that his bread has mixed with his milk in this cool dark cave and grown this food Wait, thing. Wait, you're saying back then wooing was that easy? Uh, apparently, wow. apparently, if you were it's a lone a story. shepherd, I'm sort of right. hung up on that part of yeah. the story. Yeah. If you don't mind, I use, it's a euphemism. All right, right. Like, I mean, <laughs> during this time, let's he just was keep, gone for a let's while. Just, right? Right? Let's just. I had me going. dropping my bread into my cheese and chasing right. Nikki. Okay. Exactly, exactly. So you know, he comes back to the cave and he sees uh, this you know, blue molded a creation. And he says, I'm going to eat that. Uh, and he does. And apparently it is this life changing experience. Well, wouldn't this you is, think looking at it, that it was bad and it might be like, it might kill you. I, I mean, think they were right. willing to take, I, I think, uh, clearly I think they were, but yeah, I think he was probably like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cool. I'm going to die from something by the time I'm like, you know, 18. So what did you pour for us? Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah, you got to I like to hold up the bottle when I'm okay. talking. So this is a rosé sparkling. It's lovely. From France. It's a brut rosé. Brut just means dry. So this is going to have um, almost no residual sugar at all, which is um, sort of a blessing and a curse. You get a nice uh, sort of tart acidity from this. And because it's a rosé, you get really good fruit presence. Um, 
Sparkling wines can also really benefit from a little bit of residual sugar, especially when you're pairing them with cheese, because cheese can be salty. Mm -hmm. And anytime you can work the whole sweet-savory combination thing, you're going to win with food. So that is what we're drinking. Well, so let me ask, because I I think a lot of people think that either sparkling or white is going to go better with cheese. But there are lots of reds that can go really lovely with a cheese, right? There there are a lot of reds that that can. the, the first part of your statement is 100% accurate, actually, uh, is that sparkling wine, if you had to pick one uh, style of wine to drink with every cheese on earth, it would be a sparkling wine. Sure. And it would pair with practically everything. The acidity is great. The bubbles help to cleanse the palate, so you all that creaminess kind of gets cleaned off. Whites, um, because they don't have tannins, mm-hmm. are really great with cheese. Where you run into trouble with red wine is that it has two uh, uh, components that can be troublesome when it comes to pairing. The first is tannins, which is a type of protein that's present in the skins and the seeds of grapes. And with red wines, because they live on the skins for a while, that imparts into the wine and it can give you that um, sort of a rough sort of um, a, a tea feeling when you like almost like a, a iced tea kind of bitterness. I always say to it, sometimes it feels like it's turning your teeth red. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And it, and it does. Um, <laughs> so, so, so the tannins are one trouble, trouble spot. And the other is oak. So a lot of times uh, red wines, in order to sort of help them balance out and, mm-hmm. and become more interesting, uh, they will be aged in oak. And that oak can be very overwhelming when you're trying to pair with cheese. Similarly, for instance, in American style, I say American style. Uh, Chardonnay, Chardonnay. is, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, not your friend when no. it comes to... You want to, a Sauvignon Blanc, yeah. right? You want oh something clean yes. and crisp. Aged Chablis. in steel. Right, exactly. Aged in steel, people. Sure. Okay, stay away from the super oaky wine. So so that's where red wine can be a little bit difficult. Okay. So the odds are if you could choose a sparkling or you could choose a red, mm-hmm. choose a sparkling. Okay. So now what I would like to do, because we only have about five minutes left, I want to talk about your different shops, sure, where they are and the kind of classes you're holding and the kind mm-hmm. of events you're doing, because right. you do a lot to help further wine and cheese education. Yes. So you opened your first one in Del- Delray. Mm-hmm. All of them now, all your spots are cheese shops, wine shops, and, and restaurants. restaurants. Correct. Explain where they all are okay. and sort of the kinds of programming that you have sure, in the spaces. Sure, um, All of our locations are in Virginia. So we have one in Alexandria. That's our original location. We have two in Arlington, one in the Boston neighborhood mm-hmm. um, and one in the Sherlington neighborhood. And then our most recently opened is in the Mosaic District of Fairfax. Mm-hmm. Um, so our mission is all about making cheese approachable and fun and educating people about cheese and wine. So it it touches everything that we do. It touches how we arrange our shops and how we uh, select items for the shops. It touches how we design our menus and the types of cheeses and things that we feature there. It touches on uh, the the classes that we teach and the wine dinners. Um, All of these things, uh, even something like my newsletter (laughs) that goes out um, every week, it's all about education and making people feel um, that they're being informed in a really fun way. So mm-hmm. it really does. It, it touches everything, the way that we train our staff. I was just going to ask. Yeah. I mean, I assume because you can't be at all for no. properties. So how no. do you train your staff? Because how many, let's, at any given property, how many cheeses do you have now? Um, anywhere from, I'd say, maybe 60 to about 250. I mean, that's at a, any one spot. That's a lot yeah. of product to be it's really a lot of familiar product. with. It is. Uh, and it takes a special person to want to learn about it. So right away, you're self-selecting, right? You're getting right. people who are really into 
food and are curious and want to learn about it uh, because it's really encyclopedic level of, of knowledge. But when someone's really into something, it's easy to teach them. Um, you, they want to learn. So, sure. it, so we do have a pretty extensive training program that we put them through. I but think the course, course should be called Come to Cheeses. Okay. There you, go. you already what used you that joke once. Yeah. Not it's really. Over. No, I love cheese puns, though. They never get old, really. Like cheese. Right. Oh. oh, thank you I mean, so you much. totally set him so up for one, that. One, one, you are not helping me. One last question. Sure. So if There's not one last question. We have four are, minutes left. Okay, well, this is a long question. Oh, boy. No. What, what are the, what's the menus in the restaurants? Yes. So, obviously, the menu is cheese-centric. So, we have everything from cheese boards to really awesome uh, takes on grilled cheeses and mac and cheeses. But it's not just heavy cheese fare. I mean, we have beautiful salads that feature really delicate and interesting cheeses. We have amazing entrees that, that are sort of kissed by cheese, but it's not like you're eating a plate full of cheese. Um, so, there's really a, a wide spectrum of, of items that are available. Lots of really fun um, share plates and starters and things like that and ways to teach people that cheese can be really delicious in lots of different in lots of different ways well i have to be honest heavy well but so to me like one of the things i love at a restaurant um is when i get to a restaurant you know while i'm perusing the menu i like to snack and to me that's where the cheese plate should be you know Mm -hmm. when you entertain in your house and you invite people over we put out cheese i mean that's not how they do it in france you know in france the cheese plate comes at Mm -hmm. the end of the meal Mm -hmm. um which i assume has to do with bacteria and eating with digestion or is or the the theory there is that it's a way for you to finish off your wine so that you've gotten to the end of your entree course and you have all this wine left and what do you do with it right (laughs) so oh here you have cheese Cheese, Um, right salads there are those that say it does aid with digestion actually the the active bacteria sure cheese for sure Okay, well, I went with that. Yeah. <laughs> but That's now cool. that you mentioned the wine thing, sure. that makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> but I do wish that more restaurants employed, and I know the, I know the problem is, is that it's, it is expensive to have mm-hmm. a fleshed out cheese program. It is. So what would be some advice before we wrap up here? Mm-hmm. Let's give some advice to non-restaurants. Absolutely. But to people at home, if you're like, I want to keep a couple cheeses in the house or cheeses mm-hmm. for entertaining, what would be what would be your ideal cheese plate? So an ideal cheese plate has a little bit of variety so that mm-hmm. whomever you are entertaining has something that they will like, right? right. So a, a really safe bet, and, and you'll see this is actually what I did on our platter, is three cheeses. Mm-hmm. It's You know that out of three cheeses, everyone's going to find something, something they like. Something that they like. You want to have different textures. So as you can see, we have a very creamy, gooey cheese. We have sort of a medium texture, the goat's milk cheese, mm-hmm. and then a very firm cheese. So textures, different colors. Something to remember about cheese is it is uniquely a very visual, um, it's a very sensory experience. It's got aroma, it's got flavor, it's got beautiful visual. And you want to maximize all of that. You want to make your cheese presentation look beautiful. And it doesn't mean you need to have, even for a restaurant, it doesn't mean you need to have 30 cheeses available. Right. Have three, maybe to 10 beautifully curated cheeses that you really take care of, which mm-hmm. means wrapping them properly and maintaining them and giving them love. Well, and how do you wrap other. them properly? So the worst thing you can do is wrap cheeses in plastic wrap. Um, because it will actually, they're living, so it will actually suffocate the cheeses. Mm-hmm. So the best thing is to actually use a cheese paper that is slightly perforated. 
well, if, it's like wax paper. So if you wrap it in the wax paper and it has that layer of... Um, like wax. Of, like like wax on like the inside. Like real wax paper. Well, and the, the trick is, too, you're, you're looking at me like you doubt me, and I'm going to tell no, you I'm why. No, I'm looking at Nikki. No, no, no. Because I'm the one who wraps the cheese. She takes it and throws here's, it in the fridge. Here's know? the problem, is that most people try to keep their cheeses for too long. So any cheese is going to dry out if you leave it in your refrigerator for too long. So trying to keep your cheeses for less than a week is really a good goal because they're either going to dry out or they're going to get all claggy and gross we buy a big chunk of it and it ends up being like a rock yeah no no absolutely and it loses its flavor so it becomes so dried out that you can't enjoy it is not a blue cheese right it is not a blue cheese it's got ash it has ash right which is actually pulverized um burned vegetables so it's it's technically flavorless but it's Mm -hmm. actually one of the most ancient preservatives uh, in the world is is crushed vegetable ash and that's why you'll see a lot of ancient recipe cheeses like french morbier for instance actually uses ash as a preservative so they would coat the cheese in the ash and it would keep critters from getting into it uh, and keep other bacteria from growing so now we think of it as this cool visual like oh it's so look at how it is it's very pretty it's beautiful but again with cheese it's functional that's the brebby russe that's that's the gooey sheep's milk cheese it's so amazing isn't okay it? before so we sweet. wrap up i'm gonna ask one more question sure the addition of crackers is yes. that an american thing or is that something everybody does it is something that everyone should do okay um so a lot of you know in france for instance you'll see a lot of more a lot more bread put, used yeah, bread Italy, the thing is the if your thing. bread is not supremely fresh don't serve it so it's better to serve a delicious interesting cracker you can see these are not just like no offense no, to Ritz these crackers are, these are rainforest yes, right I love yes. these crackers Good. they're that, fabulous that was really imp- su- uber impressive she does not see the box anywhere either <laughs> that was impressive so those are rain raincoats crisps and um, so do an interesting cracker you don't have to do like a, a, mm-hmm. a, a saltine and it's much preferable to having stale bread. Of course, if you have a beautiful, warm baguette. Gorgeous, beautiful I mean, bread. go for it. Raisin bread. Oh my God, the best thing ever. But otherwise, right, because use a crackers. little sweet, that's why you see yes. a honey or yes. a preserve or like a date cake or something sweet like that. and savory people. Perfect. It's all about the sweet and savory. Okay, right. Jill. Show. Tell everybody where they can find you, please. Well, you can... Excuse me. You can find us on the web at cheeseteak.com to mm-hmm. learn more about our locations, of course. And then if you are anywhere in the D.C. metro area, we are but a stone's throw from wherever you might be right now. That is absolutely true. And please uh, go to her website. Cheeseteak.com. Because there are amazing classes and dinners yes. and, and education that you can get if you are interested in cheese, cheese and wine, pairings and etc. It's um, fabulous places. Jill, thank, thank you. you so much thank for you today. Thank you for having me. like a commercial. It wasn't a commercial. Pretty good. Okay, I was I just it. wrapping it up, which is what I do. <laughs> All right, Nikki Nellis here for a cheese tea. <laughs> okay. That's anyway, right. <laughs> We're going to end the show now. Uh, we want to thank you all for tuning in today. This was a uh, delicious exploration of cheese from around the world but where you can get them at Cheese Teak. Uh, Jill is a fountain of information and I'm so glad we got to learn about it today. Last thing. She graduated from the University of Chicago in 1998 with a degree in computer science. No wonder you're so smart. Okay. She's a bright check. Uh, Thank you all for joining us today. Next week, we're tuning in to beer. We're going to learn all about it. I'll come back with your... I was going to say, can I come back back for some? We have some brewmakers who are coming in. You can be be our Ed McMahon. Can you stop speaking? Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next week. Who put you in charge? Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. 
Full-service radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.